Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. With Benelin on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, Jerry Hussey of Soul Space on how to handle the overwhelm, particularly as the Christmas machine ramps up. And Brian Redmond on whether or not he'll be a better Dancing with the Stars judge now he has ditched the glasses following eye surgery. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I have to say, thankfully, I feel I've got back on track with a lot of different work things on, I just couldn't seem to get enough time to just spend a day at home sitting at my laptop and sort a few things out. My desk was a sea of papers. My head felt the same. I've just been rushing around, as I've been telling you every week, in a bit of a frenzy, pulled in all directions. But I got there on Tuesday and it felt so, so good. It's funny, and I know I've spoken about this on the show before, how in the most stressful of times, We tend to let all our supports collapse. We start eating badly, sleeping badly, leaning into things we know aren't the best for us. And sometimes that's a time necessity and something has to give, but it does all start to build up. And these are really the times we need those pillars the most. And I had gotten into a habit of going to the gym in the mornings. The kids were at school and it suited me. And I had kind of told myself that rushing out the door in the evening, and it's true, it can be kind of a disruptive energy in the house because, you know, there's homework into dinner, there's always some activity on. And I kind of felt I needed to be an anchor in the middle of all of it and be there to help move it on from all of that into the wind down and the bedtime. But When work takes up my mornings, which it has been, and that has been great, all of a sudden, three or four weeks have passed and I haven't been consistently going to the gym. And I like going as well as it being good for me. So this week, I decided to break ranks and I went to two evening classes and I loved it. And guess what? Nothing fell apart at home. And we just start to tell ourselves these stories and talk ourselves in and out of certain behaviours. So I just flipped a switch this week. I'm back to writing my lists, doing a guided meditation on my phone once a day to try and cope with the overwhelm of everything that goes on in life. And I've become more energised from my gym visits. I mean, we do laugh at goldfish going round and round in the bowl, forgetting. I don't even know if that's a, a myth, but we do kind of say, how funny would that be? But why do we as humans go around forgetting what we know to be true and having to remind ourselves? I also had a great couple of nights away with some girls for a friend's birthday. Walks, food, chats and belly laughs galore. So, so good for the soul. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Brian Redmond, probably best known as a judge on Ortiz Dancing with the Stars, is ditching his glasses. He has taken up an ambassadorship with Optilays, having undergone one of the newest treatments available, lens replacement surgery. And Brian joins me in studio now. Brian, you're very welcome. Good morning. Great to be here. I said to you, you look different without glasses. Yeah, everybody has said that. It's sort of understandable, I suppose. You would expect to look different without glasses. You know, I'm, I'm more aware of maybe the bags under my eyes than I would have been when I had glasses <laughs> on, but that's a different problem altogether. Yeah, I mean, you get they become part of somebody's identity. I remember having a friend who was synonymous with glasses and wore kind of quite a funky pair. Yeah. And when he said he was going to go for laser, I was like, oh, 
I don't know. I don't know why I was trying to talk him out of it. But it's it's funny. They do become part of who you are. They do, yeah. And I mean, to be honest with you, even when I go back to the first, um, the very first photo shoot that we did for Dancing with the Stars, I'd actually gone through the whole casting process and wasn't actually wearing glasses during that process. And I arrived in for the first photo shoot with them on, and the producers went, "Oh, we love them. Leave them on." So it sort of became part of that identity. Now I did wear glasses all day, every day, so they weren't just a prop. But you're right; they do definitely become part of somebody's identity and you sort of worry maybe how you look I mean I've got two young children at home and my um, then seven year old daughter Anna she's just recently turned eight um, she wasn't that keen on the idea of daddy not having glasses so yeah for sure they become part of somebody's personality Now before we get into how and why you got rid of the glasses can we talk about you and dance because I'm always fascinated in knowing more about these people who are judges or who work in this world of professional dance. When did it start for you? It started for me when I was 11 years of age. Now, historically, it probably goes right back to my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents, but particularly my dad's parents in particular. Um, They were very much involved in dance. They used to dance socially themselves, not competitively, but they danced socially and they were involved in, you know, running social dances and different bits and pieces. And my parents actually met through dance then as a result of that as well. So although my journey started when I was 11, it's been in the family for a couple of generations now. And 11 is kind of a bit older. I mean, at that stage, I I have an 11 year old son and he'd be quite conscious. You know, he's even a bit like, oh, no, I'd sooner play football than do do drama and there is all that going on for, for boys. A hundred percent. I mean, there's, I come from a family of two boys of a younger brother and it purely happened by chance. I mean, my parents had to go and meet some friends of theirs one day who also had children who were dancers and we were warned on the way there, listen, we've got to pop into this dance competition. Now lads, be good. 15 minutes, no messing about, we'll be in and out. But apparently when I arrived there, I stood by some pillar on the side of the dance floor, just completely transfixed by the other kids who were dancing. So the parents sort of took advantage of that and maybe about 45 minutes to an hour later, we eventually left. And when we got back to the car, I said to my parents, my mum in particular, how come we were never allowed to dance? And she explained, well, it's not a case that you were never allowed. We just didn't think you'd have an interest. And she did something really, really clever. She said to us, well, you can go to some classes, but you have to go for a month. If after the month you don't like doing it, then fine, no problem. But you can't go the first night and say, oh, that's not for me. So we went along for a month and and that was the beginning and the end of it all in one go because from then on it, it continued and it's been part of my life ever since. When did it become competitive and then professional? And and did that change it? Did it go from being a, a joy to being a profession? Do you kind of have to trade one off for the other. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I I was fairly fortunate that at, at a very, very young age, I started to do quite well competitively quite quickly. And I've, despite my character on TV, I'm a firm believer in positive reinforcement, particularly for children. And I remember one or two people saying in past, oh, you're doing really well or you're particularly good at this. And that really gave me that drive to keep going. But for me, I had that want to do it professionally quite early on because from about 13 or 14 years of age I started to realise that the generation of dancers who had preceded me were all sort of disappearing from the scene here in Ireland. Now this is talking, you're talking about around about early 90s at this stage and they'd all moved off to the UK, London in particular, where they were getting more training and learning to dance more Um, and I was just like, where are they all gone? So 
wasn't obviously through the internet or social media because that wasn't around at the time. But through hearsay, you started to realise that actually the place to be was in the UK. And at about 13 years of age, I know it's extremely young, but I had made this naive decision that at 17, when I finished school, that that's where I was going. So it wasn't quite professional at that stage, but it was definitely always going to be part of my life. But really from the time of about 17, when I left home and moved to London, it was it was serious then at that stage because that was the reason why I was making all the sacrifices. You know, you're 13, you're 14, you're doing it as a hobby. But at 17, you're away from your family. You're having to support yourself. You're missing out on all those sort of rites of passage that we would go through at 17, going to college possibly, going out maybe at the weekends, socialising. I'd given all that up. So at that stage, I had actually then started to miss out on things. So that's when it really became serious for me. And how healthy and well are dancers? Because the fitness level is second to none. Mm. Do you live like athletes? Yeah, I mean, we w- it probably not so much at that point, because I think no matter what sport you're talking about, whether it's soccer or GAA or even dance, going back to the early 90s, there wasn't the same sort of level of um, detail and science behind what we were doing from a sporting point of view. I think any athlete at that sort of period, 80s, 90s, they were just fit through doing what it was that they loved doing. So as the years have progressed, we would have maybe in the later years started going to the gym. We would have had lectures from sports psychologists even, for example. So that all would have come in a little bit later on. But the essence of being fit was the essence of being fit through doing the activity. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's a great... great sport, great activity, whatever phrase you want to put on it, because not only are you dealing with the cardiovascular element of it, there's a lot of strength, a lot of core elements, a lot of flexibility. So all around, it's a very balanced activity for keeping somebody fit. And because of its popularity on TV now, we're all getting an insight into it and it's complete body awareness. You know, when there is a dance move, you're going all the way from the tips of your toes to the tip of your fingers. And that's not something everybody gets that full body awareness. Absolutely not. I mean, a lot of sports, a lot of activities would be possibly focused on certain areas of bodies or certain physical skill sets. I mean, when you think about the the range of dance styles that they do on the show, and I mean, huge, huge compliments to all the celebrities that come in because they have probably the space of three to four months, if they're lucky, to develop the types of skill sets that we've been working on for 20 years. You know, the strength that you see in some of those dancers when they're doing the lift work, particularly from the boys and the person being lifted as well, it requires a lot of strength. The stamina, the the explosive power and energy. So it's a real, real challenge for them, not just to get over the nerves, not just to get over the self-consciousness that they have of being on TV, exposing themselves, and I mean that metaphorically rather than physically, Um, but it's a real, real challenge for them physically as well to take it on. So, Yes, it's my job to maybe point out the bits, the areas where they're not doing so well. But overall, when we're out of season and I'm not sitting there behind that table, I have huge respect for all of them. Yeah, it's so, so tough. A huge challenge because it's not like you just go out and and freestyle dance. It's very, very specific what they're trying to learn. It just boggles me how they do it. It's, It's very, very impressive. So with your new eyes, are you going to be able to spot mistakes a little bit better? Well, I would like to believe so. I mean, obviously, having been in with Optilase and, and had, you know, I didn't even just have laser. I had ocular lens replacement, which is a completely different process to laser. Um, yeah, I would like to think so. Certainly, my distance vision is as good now with out glasses probably than it was with glasses mid vision is excellent as well I'm only four weeks post the procedure so there's still you know the little bits in low light very small print but I mean the one thing that I would say about Optilase is everything that they told me would happen 
has happened. So it gives you that confidence. And they've said that a process like this could take probably even three to four months to fully settle down and fully settle in. So I'm really, really happy with it. The competitors on the show come January might wish that I had sort of smudges on my glasses and bits of makeup and stuff like that. So I didn't pick up on all those mistakes. So maybe, yeah, maybe I will even pick up on stuff that I've missed previously. I mean, we spoke at the start about how glasses were very much part of who you were. Um, Did you have any reservations about having the surgery? No, I tell you why, because when it comes to me, um, this might sound cocky or big-headed, I have a very strong sense of myself and how other people perceive me doesn't change me. It doesn't change how I interact with the key people in my life, my family, my close friends, the people I work with. So whether I'm on the TV and people go, oh, he seems a bit grumpy, that's okay. That's fine. You know, those people don't know me. So fundamentally, I'm still me. I'm still exactly the same person. And even though people might go, oh, you look a bit younger with them or you don't look as grumpy without them or whatever it might be, it hasn't changed me. So whatever people think, whatever people um, see, whether people struggle to recognise me because I haven't got them on, that's that's not me. That doesn't really bother me on a day-to-day basis. So I'm quite comfortable with that change. I mean, it's not like I've gone and had full plastic surgery as a result of not being confident with myself. I was confident enough to be able to make the change. One thing that was interesting was... Um, the week before I went in to have the procedure with Optilates, my young daughter was sitting on the floor and she's very astute, very, very clued in. And an advert came on for a hair restoration clinic and she looked at me and she said, you're not getting that done as well. Are you? And I was like, no, no, no. No, I'm quite happy um, not having to worry about what's going on at the top of my head so much. What about the procedure itself? People are often a bit squeamish about mm. having something done with their eyes. Yeah. How, how was that? Well, there's three questions that almost everybody I've seen since I have had it done has been asking. A, can you see? Well, yes, obviously I can. <laughs> That's the first thing. And the second one is the one that you're sort of alluding to. Did it hurt? And people won't believe me when I say this, but absolutely not at all. I took two Panadol, you know, simple painkillers, the stuff that you can get over the counter that evening when I went to bed. And that wasn't for my eyes. I had a headache and it was because we had to wear this sort of very funky looking plastic shield type glasses for the day just to make sure that you didn't, you know, scratch your eyes instinctively or anything like that. And that simply had an elastic band. And I'm full sure that the bit of a headache what I had going to bed that evening was because of that elastic band wrapped around my head. So I would stand over and be very, very comfortable and saying to people, it was completely painless. Yes, you've got the few nerves beforehand. Yes, it's uncomfortable, if you like, with people not poking around your eyes, but being that close to your face consistently. But in terms of pain, there was no pain at all. And then the other thing that people always ask me is, was it expensive? Well, to be 100% honest with you, it's not the cheapest procedure that you'd ever get done. I, I worked with the guys as a brand ambassador. So, all the cards on the table, I didn't pay for it. But on the other side of the coin, I know that they have options in terms of payment structures and all that type of thing. So if it's something that really bugs you, you know, the consultation process is free. Go and have a consultation. The checkup that you get as part of the consultation on your eyes is phenomenal anyway. So that's 100% worth doing. But if you're concerned about pain, don't be. Yeah, because this is a very different procedure. I think people are are a bit more familiar with the laser. Absolutely. This is very different. And this is for people who over time, perhaps their their focus is is gone. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I didn't even really realise that this procedure was out there. I was obviously aware of laser like most people would be. And it was only then when I went for the consultation, they said, well, listen, you're lucky enough that you're a candidate for 
all sorts of different options. And here are the options and here's what they entail. The first thing that surprised me as somebody who needs to wear glasses for distance was if I had have chosen to get laser done, I would instantly have then needed reading glasses. And I was like, well, that sort of defeats the purpose. The point is trying to get rid of them. Um, So that sort of ruled that out for me as an option. I didn't see the point in just swapping one for the other. Um, But with the the lens implants, you don't have that option. So it's like basically wearing a multifocal contact lens, but it's internally installed. Is that the right word? Implanted within the eye. And it's it's got a a lifespan. Somebody said to me once, they said... um, your eyesight will be exactly the same as when you go into the box as it is today, meaning that, you know, I won't need to go back for top-ups or changes, whereas oh, I think laser... quite ne- gruesome. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a positive way to look at things. But I think laser has a lifespan for most people of about eight to ten years and at sort of 45 years of age, hopefully I live um, long enough to, to get use out of the lenses. So it's, it's, a, it's a once-off procedure um, that will last for a lifetime. And also, the other thing, that I learned by going to the consultation was that you can't get cataracts as you get a lot older. You know, most people, if they're lucky enough to get into their 70s and 80s, will have that little bit of natural clouding in the lens. And certainly both of my grandmothers had that as they got older. You can't get that if you've had this procedure done because there's no lens there to cloud over. So for me, the benefits of of getting this procedure being completely glasses-free not needing to look at, you know, reading glasses as an alternative to distance glasses. And the fact that this it's a long-term one-hit wonder, if you like, was sort of the reason why I opted to go for that as opposed to laser. Plus, the recovery is quicker. Well, I wonder now, will people tune in in January and say, oh, dear and Gary, he's new. And is that a new judge? Until you say your trademark, can I just say and go for yeah, the jugular? Can I, can I just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely that or a nine from Brian. But maybe I'm going to be very, very conscious because apart from dancing on TV live, walking down them stairs live every Sunday evening is a real, real challenge. And God forbid the first time I ever fall down the stairs is when I'm not wearing my glasses. So that would be very conscious of walking down them stairs probably the first week. I will have everything crossed you. Brian Redmond, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, thank you. Coming up after the break, Jerry Hussey of Soul Space on their new show, Coming to the Helix on December 11th. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're very welcome back to Alive and Kicking. There are some interviews that really stick out in my mind on this show, and Miriam and Jerry Hussey first came on the show when I just started presenting it about three years ago, and I was I'm always fascinated by a couple that work in the same industry and Miriam and Jerry really fascinated me because they're quite the powerhouse running Soul Space. I've since spoken to them each individually and Jerry is back now today. Jerry, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. And I remember saying to you then, you had your beloved dog who was actually since passed. God, I mean, does this dog know what it's he is soaking up all the time around the two of you? And now there's there's two children soaking it all up. So I, much has I changed know. since then. And it's it's funny, um, Oscar. You know, Oscar and Oscar was one of my my greatest friends. And um, you know, I think the first time I felt loved in life was when I got that dog. And that's you know, it took me a while to realize that we had a connection that was, you know, people who don't have dogs will think I'm nuts, but people who have dogs will or pets will know there's a strange connection. And sometimes up to that point. I was always trying to be somebody that would be lovable or acceptable to other people. And I always felt that other people had an agenda. So teachers wanted me to be a good, well-behaved student. Sports coaches wanted me to win 
things. Um, my parents wanted me to be in a certain way. But when I got Oscar, it was like, I suddenly realised he had no expectation of who I am or who I was or who I could be or should be. All he was interested in, are you kind, are you loving, and can you make time for me? And I think through him, I began to realise, actually, maybe, maybe that's enough. Maybe being kind and loving and making time for people, maybe that's enough. So it was a relationship I entered into with no expectation. And I had no need to be anything other than the person that was there at that moment. And uh, it sounds unusual that you could have that level of self-awareness with the relationship with the dog. And then the most amazing thing is the night Oscar died, the very next morning we found out we're pregnant with Eli. So I think all relationships are learning. And I think to be in a, a healthy relationship with another person or another thing or another pet, you have to be in a healthy relationship with yourself. And that's that's what I love about relationships is what is this relationship telling me about me? What is it bringing up in me? What is it, who is it allowing me to be? And uh, yeah, so that's when we met first. That was my, 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 my Oscar, he came everywhere with me and that's why because I just felt so loved and safe and secure around him. And, and I think for us all, that's the gift of relationship. A relationship is something that enables the very best of you. And obviously there is a difference between having a a pet and having a a child. But the way you described it there, I mean, look, you can't leave the child at home all day and then take them around the block and everything is all right. But they still show up with the same, are you loving? Are you kind? Can you make time with me? They don't have any expectations of what money you have in the bank or how you're performing at work. No, they don't. And and, uh, a child, particularly between the age of zero and eight, we know works on on theta brainwaves. So they're literally downloading so everything you say, they believe. So they believe everything. You, you, They don't believe you're a liar. So they just accept everything you say. And children at that stage, because they don't have an intellectual, a brain that can intellectually, logically order the world, they're learning through fre- frequency, through energy. So they feel safe. If you have an energy of safety, they feel loved. So it's really important that if we have young children that it's not really what we say that matters, it's how we make them feel. And if we have a really bad day at work and we all have them at times or we come home or we're stressed or we're worried about something, the child doesn't have the logical brain to be able to work that out Well, mammy or daddy is annoyed because of something at work. They just know when mammy or daddy's with me, they're not present, they're not engaged. And the danger with that is the child will eventually internalise that and say, because I'm not enough. I don't excite them. I don't feel love, I'm not loved. And that's what relationships are, they're energy. And a great relationship is how you make each other feel. So that's what I'm trying to be aware of and I get it right, I get it wrong, I get frustrated with them at times at half four in the morning. But when my energy changes, they change. And I think that a child shows us really who we are as people. When we move beyond the intellect and we take the mask off, it's energy, it's frequency, it's how I feel around this person. And and uh, so I try my best around them to be as calm as I can and as funny as I can and as loving as I can. And, and if that's the energy I give them, then I think that's the only gift I can give them. And you do talk an awful lot about all the stuff that we learn and that we are socially conditioned and that can, you know, hold us back in life and to go back to our childhood 
and how free and open we are. And I've even heard you talk about your, your toddler son, Eli, and how he just, you go on a walk with him and he's stopping for every flower. And they really open your eyes to that. But one thing I found with parenting, and I wonder, do you ever grapple with it? The mistakes, in inverted commas, that our parents may have made or the things that we picked up, do you ever think about that? What 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 mistakes am I making here? How am I messing them up as well as giving them everything I can? Always. And, you know, anybody who knows my work will know that there's a deep belief in me at times that I'm not good enough. And that's something I have to work hard to overcome. And that's something that is maybe present in a lot of people. When I listen to my own inner voice, sometimes it's my inner coach, but very often it's my inner critic. And I think that like with work, I know I can win. I know I'm good at work. I know it makes me feel good. It makes me feel safe. I know I'm good at lots of things. I don't know if I'm good at being a dad. And that worries me because at times I feel like I'm failing Eli or failing Bethany. And that brings up that inner story of not being enough. So sometimes my frustration or my sadness or my my anger of being a parent is actually down to my inner belief. So it's not that I'm angry at Eli. The question I try to ask myself is, what is Eli awakening in me right now? And I think as a parent, if anyone is a parent, it's hard to know if you're winning. It's a, you feel like you're losing half the time. You know you're making mistakes. But it's it's to understand that you're not a failure. And uh, I think the more we try to be the perfect parent or the more we try to get things right is we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. So... I always say to Miriam, you know, even if Miriam says, you know, you're a good dad, I just say, I'm just trying my best. I'm just doing my very best. And that's enough for me. So I think, I think that's relationships with other people. And it could be a relationship with your boss. It could be a relationship with your child or with your husband or wife. When there's a time of high emotion, instead of saying that person is making me feel angry, my boss is making me feel angry or my child is making me feel angry. Another way to look at it is what in me is that person igniting, awakening. What's the belief? What's the story that they're igniting? And how can I heal that? Yeah, and there's there's learning in it, isn't there? And you spoke about healing and, and one thing I would have found, and I know in your, your best-selling book, Awaken the Power Within, you spoke about always questioning whether or not your dad was, was proud of you. And I used to have that with, with my own parents growing up because we had quite a tumultuous teen time. And... I understood them more when I became a parent myself and the sort of a forgiveness and a and a healing in that, even though you've already made peace with it in your mind, there it's like a full circle moment almost, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, for me, trauma affects our mind or affects our brain or biology and our chemistry. And one of the main reasons we don't succeed or one of the main reasons we, we, we our life never becomes what it couldn't, what it could be is an unresolved emotion or an unresolved trauma. But we forget that the biggest trauma a human being could experience, in my experience, is the feeling of being unloved or unlovable. And so many people, when we look deep into our soul, when we look in the mirror, you know, when you look in the mirror, do you see someone that you think is an amazing human being? Do you see them as a mystery of the universe? Are you deeply proud of the person you are? I think a lot of us, the voice in our head is actually very critical. We're constantly picking out why we're not good enough. And that voice had to, has to come from somewhere because you weren't born with it. You weren't born with a voice that says I'm not good enough or, or comparison or self-judgment. or So you learn that voice. And very often we learn that voice from a teacher or a parent. 
why can't you be like your sister? Sit down and eat your dinner like your brother. Sit down there and do your homework like your sister. Look at your cousin. Look, he's doing that. And suddenly we find, oh, I need to compare myself or I need to... And, um, and then what happens is comparison is two things. One is we compare ourselves to other people, which can be very, you know, a comparison is the thief of joy, but not just comparing ourselves to other people. We can compare ourselves to the person that we think we should be. And particularly when we get to a certain age in life, I can't believe I'm X and I still maybe not married, I don't have children, or I don't own my own house. And we're comparing the life we have to this idea of a life that we think we should have. And that's the worst type of comparison because now you're judging your real self against this fictional idea. So I grew up with this fictional idea of who my dad could be proud of. And for every second I wasn't proving that I was that person, I was telling myself that the real self wasn't good enough. And I needed to change. I needed to be more like my brothers. And, and for every second you're striving to become someone else, you're denying and suppressing and denying who you are. You give some incredible examples about moving with fear and moving with love. And that sounds like something that people would think, yeah, OK, I'd sooner move through my life with love than fear. But how do we do it? And I love the analogy. I think it was on our gorgeous friend Georgie's Instagram live, Georgie Crawford. And you were talking about the, the burning fire. Mm. Talk to us about that, how the brain and the heart can sometimes tell yeah. us different things. So, you know, most of how we operate is by emotion. We used to think that the brain and the neurochemistry of the brain is linked to the neurosecretary. So we used to kind of think that the certain thoughts we think fire the emotion. So we have a, a thinking, feeling, doing uh, triangle, really. And they're all connected. But the more we study neuroscience is we know that it is impossible to think outside of an emotion. So the emotion comes first. And the emotion is energy, electricity. It's a charge. So the way we feel, so if you wake up in the morning and you feel nervous, you're going to start thinking about everything that makes you nervous. If you wake up in the morning and you feel angry, your brain is going to go into the schematic structure, the schematic box in the brain and unload everything you know about being angry. Every memory, every everything you have, if you feel you've been let down by other people, it'll go into your brain and it will give you every memory you have of being let down by other people. But if you wake up in the morning and you feel grateful, it will remind you of everything you're grateful for. So now we realise that the brain in your mind, in your, in, in your skull, is actually responding to your emotion. So when we get down to emotions and we can think of impatience, and we can think of anger, frustration, there's only actually two emotions love and fear, impatience, judgment, anger are simply expressions of fear. And someone that is angry is afraid of something. Somebody who's comparing themselves to somebody else is afraid of something. Somebody who has anxiety is afraid of something. It's fear. And you could go one step further and say, there's only one emotion and it's love. And fear is the absence of love. So when we live from an emotion of fear, our brain produces cortisol, adrenaline, neuroadrenaline, our heart rate goes up and our biology, our chemistry changes. We activate the sympathetic nervous system and now we move into fight or flight and we become this conditioned reflexes that are not even aware of how we're eating or thinking. So fear changes the biology, the chemistry, it shuts down our immune system, it stops us from thinking, it stops our ability to fall in love. But when we can start from a place of love, Love, instead of producing cortisol and adrenaline, the brain produces oxytocin, which is the love snuggle hormone. It is a super hormone. And the body goes into parasympathetic nervous system. 
So the immune system is switched on. We begin to feel healthy. The prefrontal cortex of the brain now opens up. So we've greater imagination, creativity. We're more at ease and we're more at joy. So this whole idea of love, allow when we start to come from a place of love, we become more peace, more present, more creative, uh, more healthy. Our immune system is switched on. But if you ask most people on a daily basis who, who are kind of worried about the job, worried about the bo- about work, worried about deadlines, worried about the financial crisis, worried about the war, if you listen to all the things you're listening to and all the things you're saying, the words you're using and the way you live your life, and if you ask people, do you think you spend more time in a fear, fear response or a love response? Most people say fear. And ultimately it comes down to the deeper question because in order to love somebody else, you can only love someone else to the extent that you love yourself. And real love can't be conditional, like I love you when or I love you if. It has to be I love you even. At your best and your worst, I choose to love you. And if we come from a place where we have deep inner love and compassion to ourselves at our greatest and our weakest moments, I meet myself every single morning with love and compassion. Now we're, we're, we have the ability to love everybody else. And that's why I say that the single biggest predictor in your success and your happiness is actually the relationship you have with yourself. Because you can work with the best psychologist once a week, you can work with the best sports coach, you can work with, but you're only getting a few hours a week with them. You're living with yourself every second of every day. There is no other voice in the world you will hear more of than your inner voice. And your life Everything you say to yourself is forming a belief. And just like a building can't stand outside the size of its foundation, your life cannot be any happier or better than the size of your belief about yourself. And you have to take action. I mean, you still do it. You said it there. You doubt yourself sometimes as a parent, but you have your toolbox. You know what to do and you have to take the action, such as, you know, getting out of bed early, doing your meditation, moving your body, catching how you speak to yourself. It takes effort and action but you gave the example of a burning house and how you would come to your house see it burning and think the fire's gone too far we just have to call the fire brigade now but if you knew that someone you love was in that house and you heard them call you you would go straight in there so yeah. we are more motivated to action when it comes to a place of love and I think you're you're so right when we talk about love we picture having this ideal partner because we've been sold the story of romantic love and romantic Rom-coms, and that's yeah. how it should actually it's comparison. be. But it's not necessarily about that. It, it's starting with yourself. And, and also, you know, the things that bring you joy, loving mm. yourself and having, mm. having fun. And I think sometimes we, we lose that sometimes. It's courage. And courage of the heart, lovers of the heart. You know, as a psychologist, as someone that is fascinated with neuroscience and brain chemistry and neuroplasticity, neurogenesis and how the brain impacts every aspect of the central nervous system, how your brain and your thoughts can change your biology and chemistry. I'm fascinated with the brain, but I'm still willing to say that we have given the brain in your in your school because there's actually three brains, the heart, the gut and the, and the brain in the skull all work together. The gut brain axis communicates bidirectional feedback between the brain and the skull and the gut. We know the gut has neurons of its own. So the brain is, the gut is consciously making decisions. So we can't think about the brain if it's just talking about the brain and the skull. But the problem is we've gone away from listening to our gut and listening to our heart. We've given the brain and the skull far too much credit and power 
The brain in your skull is simply a threat detection system. It is a biological and chemical electrical processing machine that is designed to do one thing, which is keep you safe by observing the world for potential real or imaginary threats. Yeah, which That's is fascinating, but at the same time, it's just an organ. We don't give over everything to our kidneys. And I know there isn't thought with the kidneys, yeah. but it is just an organ. So That's all we are is. something separate to that and we need to give yeah. that the power. But because we give it so credit, we start to do things logical. So people say, I have this dream of being a, uh, I'd love to be a, a radio DJ, but I don't know if, that, if, if I could do it, I would be good. So I'll end up doing something else. So what happens is the heart knows all the answers. So in your heart, if you were to ask yourself today, is this the job you dreamed of? Is this the life you dreamed of? Are you kind to yourself? Is there enough love in your life? You don't need a psychologist to tell you the answer. Now, the only question is, well, what's stopping you? Because you're listening to your bloody brain too much. Because your brain is a threat detection system. And the moment you come up with a great idea that terrifies the brain or the ego, the brain will come up with a million scenarios as to why that won't work. Yeah, which is why, back to the kids, when you ask what they want to be when they grow up, they have a list from astronaut to rock star and then they might, you know, change the world and, and they truly believe it mm. at that time. You have a show coming up in The Helix, The Christmas Show. How, how do you feel about Christmas, Jerry? I love it. I'm a Christmas fanatic because, and I know Christmas can be very hard on people and it could be a lonely time and Christmas is about new life. So if we go for the Christian tradition for a minute, it is about the birth of a child. And for me, I believe that every year I'm born again because I'm never the same. We know that every cell in your body is regenerating all the time. And the only way we get trapped in the past is if we hold on to old memories, old beliefs and old thinking, old traumas. But I work so hard every year to let all those go. So every year I can literally start again and say, right, this year, who do I want to be? Who would I like to become? What would I like to manifest? So that's rebirth. And I think Christmas is about the birth of a child. And it allows me to awaken the child in me because sometimes the work I do is heavy and it's I have to be not childlike. But I'm actually a bigger child on the inside. I'm Most people don't know that, but I'm actually a messer. I'm a child. So Christmas gives me the permission to awaken the child within. And I think that's the gift. So firstly, I love Christmas. And I'm also aware that it can be a very lonely time. It is the end of a year and sometimes we start off a year with so many expectations where everything's going to go right and then it doesn't or we lose a loved one. And Christmas could be a really monumental time. And in soul space, we never, we wanted to be a business that can coach some of the most successful, happy, vibrant people. And we do. We have people in our, in our community and in, in the, in, in, in the people we coach where life is just phenomenal for them. But that's not the business we wanted just to stop there. It's not kind of a happy, clappy, fake positivity because the things that impact us are spiritual traumas, the loss of a loved one, people who have anxiety and depression. So how do we create a human experience that no matter where you are in life, no matter what goes on in your life, you can come through that door and feel acknowledged, empowered, accepted, and also you're given the science and the tools to understand that where you are right now doesn't have to define your future. So no matter where your starting point is, with a small little bit of understanding and science and powerful techniques, we can begin to change and move towards a life of more ease, more joy, more fun. So the day is a mix of inspirational talks, uh, incredible uh, guest speakers, we have an amazing array of singers and some of the songs, and I've heard them already in auditions, 
will put your hair standing on your head. But more importantly, they will get beyond the brain and they will open your heart. So it is a mind-blowing, heart-opening day of human connection, positivity and amazing insights into the power we all have. I was at your last show with the National Concert Hall and from the minute I sat down in the chair, I had tears rolling down my face. I was so moved by every single thing on a kind of a personal level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level. And I suppose that's what you're in the business of, creating a space where your soul is stirred. And there's a lot of tough stuff going on at the minute, isn't it? It's like we went from the pandemic and there were some lovely learnings and everyone was ready to kind of come out and put them into action. And we went slap bang into a a war which seemed like it was on our doorstep. Now we're talking climate crisis, energy crisis, is the recession coming? And it can be really hard for people. But what you are really, and Miriam reminds people, is that if we can shine our own light, that that can be a ripple effect. And that's what you give people permission to do. Well, if you think back over time from from Gandhi to Nelson Mandela to, you know, the amazing people that changed the world, Mother Teresa, they looked at a world that was broken and a world that had adversity in it, but they refused to be consumed by it. And they made themselves understand that for all the adversity in this world, it is still an incredible world of magic and miracles and beauty. And 99% of the people in this world are incredible people doing incredible things. There is an amazing billions of acts of kindness going on right now. There is new babies being born every second. There's new parents meeting their, their babies. There is, and that's the world we live in. Now, media have a job, and we know this, it's to evoke emotion. And the easiest emotion to evoke is fear. So they're not going to tell you the good stories. They bombard you with the negative stories because it creates an immediate response. And when you create an immediate response of fear, then it shuts down the prefrontal cortex and people stop thinking. And now people get consumed. And when you can consume people, now you know what they want to listen to and you can control what they believe. So part of what we're trying to do is understand that there is adversity in the world and we need to acknowledge and we need to do something about it. But there is still an amazing world out there. There is still an amazing goodness for all the war that's going on. There's lots of countries that are not at war and are at peace and there's so much to be celebrated. And Victor Frankl in in Man's Search for Meaning, who was a concentration camp survivor, so talk about a person that was fully aware of the hardship and the, the you know, and yet he made the decision, this will not be the thing that defines me. For yeah. all of this anger and judgment that I've experienced, it will not define me. So I think in order to change an emotion, you have to have a different emotion. You can't change anger with anger. You can't change fear with fear. So what we want to be is a voice of love and compassion. We want to celebrate what is good with the world. We don't want to deny what is angry in life. And we all have things happen in our life that are deeply sad. We're not going to, admit, we're not going to dismiss that. But this is still a great world worth fighting for. And every single human being is a great human being with incredible potential. And they are worth fighting for. And it is not easy to do the work we do or put on these shows. But as long as I believe that I can help people feel less alone if I can give them good science that is dependable, reliable and, and proven, and if I can do it in a, 
in, in a way that activates their belief in themselves in this world. If I can be a voice that reminds people that this is still a world worth fighting for and every human being, regardless of colour, class, creed, gender, is a human being worth fighting for, then maybe I can help in some way to bring more compassion into the world. And I think most of the problems with the world can be healed with more compassion, more awareness and more understanding that we're all connected. Every single human being is connected. And if we could see ourselves in each other and everything I do and everything I say has an impact on other people, I think that's a beautiful place for the world to be in. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Well, the show is taking place on December 11th in the Helix in Dublin. For more and to get tickets, you can go to soulspace.ie. But you want to give away two tickets to listeners of the show, Jerry. So I think after we wrap up, you and I will take a photograph together. If you put it on the Soul Space page, people can comment underneath or DM to say they heard our conversation and uh, they'll get two tickets to what will be an incredible day. It's on from 10 until 4 with lunch included and you will have your soul stirred. Thank you for the work you do um, to you and Miriam and all at Soul Space. Very, very grateful. Jerry Hussey, thank you very much for thank talking you, to me today. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 with Benelin on News Talk.